This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Fifty years ago, uh, Readings Books opened its doors. The bookstore, taking its title from the eponymous proprietors Dorothy and Russ Reading, yes, if you thought it was just reading for books, it is in fact based on uh, someone's name and I'll definitely be talking to a guest that's coming later in the hour about that. Um, this store was taken over by a young by a couple of young music sellers who established the Readings stores that have been a huge part of Melbourne's cultural life ever since. Now, Readings uh, Managing Director Mark Rubeau will be joining me to talk about the bookstore's important legacy and the place it still holds in Melburnians' hearts today. I've also just gotten my hands on a new book uh, that explores themes ranging from how play helps to build the self, what constrictions traditional notions of love and monogamy hold us to, fear and how that shapes us, and the problematic impact of capitalism on feminism and the weird relationship that it still holds. To name just a few things... All of these uh, ideas sort of revolve around discussions with very deep thinkers, including author Siri Hustvedet, historian Marina Warner and social feminist Nancy Holstrom, to just name a few. Three Triple R. You're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now, my next guest has taken her exploration of themes around friendship, fear, play, love and wonder, tides of modern feminism and politics, wound them around her own experiences and those of deep thinkers like author Siri Hustvedet and social feminist Nancy Holstrom. The Thinking Woman is a meditation on these themes and more and joining me to talk about her book is author Julian Van Loon. Julian, welcome to Backstory. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Now, I really, uh, I find it, um, it's going to be quite difficult to talk about this book in a very completest way because really the nature of the book is these, uh, you know, conversations around ideas rather than kind of coming to very um, definite conclusions. And I love that idea of an open dialogue um, you know, you sort of re-prosecute the idea of dialectics, this ongoing conversation uh, with people, deep thinkers, um, uh, like women in particular who have really, you know, established themselves in, in different disciplines, um, but only one of them being a kind of big P philosopher. I really want to talk to you about what made you decide to write The Thinking Woman, uh, what, you know, kind of drove you to it. You do examine that a little bit in the book, um, but I'd love to hear it in your own words, Julian. Sure. Well, um, my background is as an academic, and so I think that sort of um, has led me towards reading critical theory and philosophy uh, more than most. Um, back in uh, the year 2000, I uh, read one of Alain de Botton's early books, The Constellations of Philosophy. And um, although I have, have um, actually published elsewhere some critiques of de Botton's later work, uh, which I have some problems with, that early book was... I, I really enjoyed as a reader. It's called, as I say, The Consolations of Philosophy and the theme is consolation and really taking some um, well-known classical philosophers and applying their ideas to 
everyday life and trying to reach a broader readership to take philosophy out of the academy and and bring it to the general reader and so he's got some great chapters in there on you know consolation for not having enough friends or consolation for not having enough money and I really really thoroughly enjoyed it and after I finished the reading I thought you know what wouldn't it be great if someone wrote a book just like this but with living thinking women and this is going to be quite controversial but I have to say I I was not as in love with that book and I I much prefer your oh, version of it <laughs> and I think maybe that's because like really uh you know perhaps it's also it, it's a really nice um way into it constellations of philosophy but I found in a sense that it kind of really makes it accessible to any reader I sort of love this because you're not backing away from the complexity of ideas and right really examining those and questioning yourself throughout it and um you know your relationship to it and even to the thinkers that you discuss things with. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have that feedback. I, I really sort of started putting the book together around themes and so I wanted themes um, very much to do with everyday life, really anchored in everyday life that affect ev- everyone, you know, and that's why I chose those chapter titles that you've mentioned already like love and friendship and work and play, fear and wonder. And then I started to think, well, um, who have I read on this topic um, that's, you know, um, that, that, that's sort of changed my thinking ar- around that? And in some cases, um, I was deliberately um, seeking um, particular women thinkers out. And in other cases, I knew exactly who I wanted to talk about and whose book I wanted to talk about. So, for example, in the chapter on love, um, I came across an essay by Laura Kipnis in Critical Inquirer, um, which was a tongue-in-cheek argument for adultery as a political act. And at the time that I came across it, I was um, really reflecting fairly heavily on a relationship I'd been in for a long time. And she just kind of hit the nail on the head for me in terms of thinking through the um, sort of broader uh, politics of domestic coupledom, monogamy and so on, uh, marriage, etc., as a form of so- of keeping the social order. And uh, so I, I, I hunted up her book um, on the same theme, so she developed a book out of that essay in Critical Inquiry called Against Love, a polemic. <laughs> you know, and she sort of starts quite tongue-in-cheek, so saying, well, who would be against love? You know, but, but she really, she's, um, she's a Marxist and um, a feminist, and she, um, she really digs in, in deep in, I mean, her, her field is um, film and cultural studies, and she really looks at the um, popular discourse in the States, she's based in the States, um, around domestic coupledom and marriage, and, you know, um, deconstructs New Yorker cartoons and this sort of thing. Her book's a lot of fun, but it really, for me, you know, it was a book that changed my life because it changed the way I thought about who I was and realised that I had actually stumbled into, although I've never married and personally, uh, as, as you, if you sort of read the book, you'll sort of understand why marriage has never been a, a, an option for me personally, but I've always been very sort of um, critical of um the um, you know long-term domestic coupledom as a thing uh, and then I sort of found that I actually had adopted it anyway without realising it and this is what happens in, in, in this mm. book a bit is, is I just start to, you know, and I, I think um, in a way philosophy isn't philosophy until it's applied and this is what I tried to do in this book. I tried to sort of take the reading I was doing 
um, apply it to reflecting on things that had happened to me, circumstances I'd found myself in. Um, and then the other, the other really big part of it, as you said, was the dialogue with the living thinking women. You That's know? right. And it's a really wonderful part because you don't let anyone off the hook with these things. So you, you're not just holding up one thinker's idea and then exploring that alone. You're bringing in other ideas, your own, other people's. Uh, you know, for example, in that chapter on love, you bring in your friend Lee, who may be familiar uh, yep. to some as a, uh, I won't necessarily mention, she doesn't, she doesn't get mentioned fully by name there, but um, someone who has different views on non Monogamy, um, as in, like you know, subverting the, the kind of institution of marriage from the inside. That's right. Um, you know, all these kinds of ideas. Um, as the kind of book goes on, you sort of really start to to challenge these other other uh, paradigms by both talking to uh, the women whose ideas you seek out, but also then you know exploring other people who counter those ideas or offer other understandings. Um, I I particularly found um, your your ideas of you know feminism as kind of contrary to capitalism and vice versa a really interesting. Um, chapter because you sort of are looking at uh, theorists that are sort of exploring these ideas and how, you know, there's a wonderful uh, moment where you sort of note that some women's lives may have uh, improved under capitalism and you very much stress that it is some, Mm. um, but correlation is not causation. And uh, then you explore this a bit more. I'd love you to talk a little bit more about this chapter. Sure, yes. Well, um, it's... um the chapter on work, work is the theme of that um, particular chapter and um, the book that, that really uh, struck a chord with me is a book called Capitalism for and Against a Feminist Debate and there are two authors. Um, Nancy Holmstrom is the um, thinker whose work I follow through in that chapter and she spars, her sparring partner is, is Annie Card, um, both American academics and um, Nancy Holmstrom argues you know, that capitalism hasn't been good for women and um, she is an interesting thinker because she's come. Uh, she she is a, a capital P philosopher. So she was the chair of the philosophy philosophy department at uh, Rutgers University in the states for a long time, um, and she has a background um, as a philosopher in the mind body problem, and so um, she's also known probably to um, socialist feminist readers as the editor of the the, the, um, the socialist feminist reader <laughs> which is a, an anthology of writing about social social fe- socialist feminism uh, but she she's interesting because when she starts to talk about um, you know when she starts to build her debate about why capitalism hasn't been great for women she um, anchors her argument very much in um, questions around work and in particular the question of um, who owns our labor and I found this really interesting she's done some work um, around sex workers as well um, and she really kind of imbues her discussion with this philosophy around the (laughs) mind-body sort of problem or or question in that she says you can't ever in in any form of work ever really separate the labourer um, and their labour, you know, from from their personhood, from their sort of uh, sense of self, from their sense of who that who, who we are, and so she says, you know, this this idea. Um, within capitalism that that labour is a sort of a commodity that we're free to give is actually a legal fiction. And I I find that really, really fascinating. And in the chapter I... um 
reflect on my own working life from you know early on as a sort of 13 year old in the Dagwood dog st- uh, stand at the Dubbo show uh, right through sort of uh, being a checkout chick to becoming an academic in, in a big, big university and uh, each time just trying to check well um, what is my relation actually here to my employer and what what are they purchasing yeah. <laughs> you know and you know it's not something that within the system you can just opt out of either which is really interesting I think um you know and to stress as well you're really exploring these ideas and and there's a wonderful moment I can't recall exactly where in the book you mention it that you know you should never presume um that you're right you know that an idea is settled and if it is it should be challenged and I do love this from the point of view of um, of this book translating um into notions of intersectionality into questions of what it is to be female um you know gender um uh, you know the, the the modern approach to looking at, at things like moving beyond traditional notions of gender entirely which is a very pertinent thing to be talking about um, as we approach International Women's Day. Um, but I just want to, to go on and, and talk about the rest of the book. And if you've just joined us and wondering what the hell we're talking about, uh, the show you're listening to is Backstory. You're listening to 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm speaking with Julian Van Loon. Her book, The Thinking Woman, has sparked this discussion. Uh, and it is quite a, a ranging discussion as the book also examines a lot of different ideas um, uh, wandering through uh, discussions with various thinkers uh, throughout. The, one of the other areas, and, and this is just to kind of, you know, warn people obviously might touch on some areas that, that they find triggering, uh, there is a discussion about fear. You talk to um, the thinker Julia Kristeva, um, you discuss ideas that are raised by Rosie Batty, and I've been particularly thinking about this chapter given you know, the horrific crime that um, was uncovered at the weekend, Prithvi Reddy, um, you know, was found murdered um, and, you know, her ex-boyfriend who later died is considered to be the primary suspect. It's just yet another of a, you know, of an old story, I guess, that we've been hearing again and again. Looking at fear and and this idea that um, I think at the start of the book you talk about, you know, Fear, fear as a woman's place was uh, was one um, poet's kind of rendering of that, that that kind of sent chills through you but sadly rings too true. I sort of want to talk about this because I feel more and more as I hear about these instances, you know, the instances of kind of uh, family violence are, you know, are rife. Mm. Um, you know, violence though in the public um, arena is less so but women are sort of bound by this fear. It's a form of terrorism. And reading through this section, I really, you know, I thought some of the ideas that are raised here are really interesting on that topic. Could you discuss this a little? Cheers, yeah. um, I uh, come from a family that, uh, uh, well, a childhood that that did involve uh, family violence and domestic violence as part of my everyday life. And so um, fear during childhood is very... uh, very familiar to me and as you say I again it was this sort of stumbling across uh, something written by another woman that really sort of sparked the chapter and it was the line from a Kamala Das poem where she she says fear is a woman's place which I found once when I was reading a book of poetry in the in the library in, in the National Library in Singapore and I haven't been able to find the original poem I've been chasing it up for years but I just I just kept that line with me and I'd have these little kind of arguments with myself, you know, yes, it is actually, that's true. No, no, it's not, you know, that's not where we live, you know. And uh, so in this essay, in, you know, that chapter, I, I really just kind of um, wrangle with that idea. But um, 
I'm, I'm interested there in Julia Kristeva's uh, notion of the abject and uh, in the um, chapter on fear, I, I apply Kristeva's ideas to the work of two Australian activists. One's Rosie Batty, who's, who's um, you know, as we've just said, working in the sort of space of family violence. And the other is Helen Caldercott, who um, is in her 80s now and has been, can you imagine, a full-time activist for over 40 years? Just imagine <laughs> that as a contribution. And who works in the space of um, disarmament and, and the anti, anti-nuclear movement and so on. And I started to look at and um, read their work and against and alongside Chris Dava and to think about fear as a motivator for the kind of activists they became. And it was really interesting to look at the um, very particular instance with Rosie Batty of um, her experience with her ex-partner and, of course, the um, terribly violent and public death of her son, Luke, um, and then sit along, sitting alongside that, the kind of work Helen's done on really large-scale um uh, th- the really large scale threat of violence that um, particularly um, big countries like the US kind of are engaging in, you know, sort of beneath the surface a lot of the time. Um, so they're the sort of three <laughs> three women that I'm sort of really interested mm. in, in in that chapter. Um, and it's a com- it's probably the, structurally the most complicated uh, chapter in the book. But I do also bring in some research from um, from other academics, including women who've uh, women academics who've looked at um, public space and the way that we as women are policed by um, not just our own fears, which we don't always recognise as active, <laughs> um, but also social expectations. So it's a really, it's a really complex field. And, and I think in, in a way, you know, what, I, what I'm trying to do th- with this book is really work with the form of the essay, which is a form of questioning and discussion mm. without coming up with a clear solution. And it's wonderful because it really does open up space for the reader themselves to enter in with their own um, ideas and identity and, um, and experiences as you kind of introduce yourself at every point. Um, you know, with your experiences that speak uh, to these more kind of intellectual ideas. Um, There are some wonderful um, other tidbits throughout this, uh, including, um, you know, Siri Hustvedet talking about play um, and the feminisation of the creative, which I find really interesting, which is sort of people devaluing the novel form, which I think is really an interesting idea that it's somehow, um, you know, this thing that women read and that's not really um, of any great value and yet if you think about the enduring impacts of ideas that are brought out through fiction um, and through I, I guess the uh, the play of ideas they are incredibly powerful vehicles um, it's a fascinating chapter as well Cheers. I, I, I really love Siri Hustved's work. And, I, and one of the other things I should mention that I'm trying to do with this book is just introduce readers to, to the work of some of these women that I'm writing about. And she's a really fantastic thinker. She's primarily known as a novelist, but she also writes nonfiction. And she, she gives, le- gives lectures on philosophy. And when I went to uh, visit her, um, she said to me, oh, Julianne, the thing is, she said, I just, um, I have the time and I read. <laughs> You know, it's such a simple thing to say, but that's sort of become her, her, her life project and she feeds all that reading into her own imaginative work as a, as a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. But in that chapter, you know, she's got some really interesting things, some really, ob- really interesting observations uh, to make about the role of the imagination and of metaphor uh, and so on. And, um, you know, um, 
I, I was going to say actually just just on um, Siri Husford's kind of conversation about um, the way in which her work is received as a sort of uh, feminised uh, kind of space. Um, is interesting in and 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 I was actually able to track with each of the women thinkers I'm looking at in the book um, instances of them really struggling to be given the cultural authority that they deserve as you know really powerfully intellectual women mm. um, in just about every instance um, there there's a there's an attempt to um, you know in the public domain to really belittle and, and to put down the kind of work that these women are doing and I found that quite sad um, mm. as I went along and I and I I haven't made a huge deal out of it in the book but just here and there when I've observed it I've I've just put it there on the page and just to show that um, you know this problem women have with cultural authority and with speaking up and speaking out is you know um, it's it hasn't <laughs> it hasn't it's gone away I, I read this book in tandem with uh, Rennie Edo Lodge's why I'm no longer talking to white people about race and I found an incredible incredibly powerful kind of combined reading effort because it sort of made me think these conversations actually now are being picked up um, in a more um, mainstream fashion which I just find kind of wonderful that actually voices that haven't been heard are starting to be heard and I wonder I mean this really does look at a group of people who haven't been given um, as much cultural weight I'm hoping that's going to change and also introduce even more um, forgotten voices or voices that just haven't had an opportunity, um, you know, to, to be a part of that conversation at all. Um, it's, a, it's a really wonderful sort of entry into that. I do want to mention you wander into um, other spaces like Wanda, um, which is a, a simply delightful chapter, friendship um, and a whole range of other kind of ideas that, um, that I sort of feel really deserve the space and, and time to be looked at. I really do have to ask the question, um, Julianne, has this, um, is there another book that is coming out of this? Because I feel like there are so many unanswered questions or so many paths to, to tread with this, or in your case, perhaps bikes to ride. <laughs> uh, you did own that you're something of a, um, of a mad keen road bike rider, which just captured my heart. <laughs> um, where are you going to take this, do you think? Is, is, this, uh, is this an ongoing kind of um, project for you? Oh, look, I don't know. You know, I found it a really, really hard book to write. There's a lot more of me in it than I thought there would be, you know, at the, at the beginning. And um, I'm a fiction writer and uh, I'm very happy to be back in the world of fiction and working on a new novel. Uh, I think this book took took a lot out of me. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, um, I, I do have some ideas brewing for, for another version of something similar. And there were women that I really wanted to speak to in this book uh, who were not available at the time for um, interview but who were very positive about the project. And um, I'd love to go back and pick up some of their work and I feel like there's many more women's, uh, women thinkers I'd like to kind of wheel out and put under the spotlight and, and, and have those kind of conversations with. And Arundhati Roy was, uh, was one of them who I'm really keen to... to to you know do a bit more work on uh, Naomi Klein bell hooks uh, who's now in her 80s so maybe I've <laughs> missed the opportunity to speak with her in person but uh, but yes there are sort of uh, ideas ticking over so yeah watch this space but I think I'll be with fiction for a little while yet before I arrive back in the non-fiction world. Well Gillian Van Loon thank you so much for joining me on Backstory today um, and for exploring these themes in your your excellent book. 
Thanks very much. You're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. And over the decades uh, since it first opened, five to be exact, Readings has captured the beating heart of Melbourne's cultural life, a gathering space, a place to hear and meet authors, somewhere to wander through and find a papery beast. And pre-social media, many of us used to post ads for housemates (laughs) on the wall. You can hear that laugh in the background. Um, That is, in fact, the managing director, Mark Rubeau, who has joined me today on Backstory to talk about about readings, how it remains um, an incredibly important place in Melbourne's cultural heart. Mark Rubo, welcome to Backstory. Oh, thank you so much, Mel, for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be here. It's um, a genuine pleasure to have you in the studio. I have to say, um, one of the most interesting things I have um, discovered recently, and this might sound very spurious to many, um, out of this uh, 50th anniversary celebration is that readings was actually started by uh, a couple who last name was Reading. That's right, yes. Um, Ross Reading and his wife Dorothy Reading and a chap called Peter Reed, they were the actual people who founded it. Um, obviously Ross's name was perfect for a bookshop. He was made <laughs> to start a bookshop. So, it's just so I, uh, we, we, when we bought it off the Readings in 1976, we of course kept it. It's just a readings is one of those places that uh, I guess when you try and describe it to people, it's so much more than simply a bookstore. Um, there was one wonderful example of this that you know the the quite predatory um, bookstore sort of models that happened with Borders um, was that they set up opposite um, you know really successful independent bookstores and then they basically made everything cheaper um, to try and steal the business. And there was this wonderful moment. I think it was when the final Harry Potter book was released. And there were people queuing outside of readings who had it for the normal recommended retail price uh, because they wanted to support readings because it was so much more than simply a bookstore when they could have gone across the road to Borders and bought it for, I think, $10 less or something. Mm. It was one of those wonderful moments of really encapsulating how much more readings has been to people than simply a place to buy a book. Yeah, look, there were some wonderful moments in that journey, (laughs) that Borders journey, we call it, Uh, and just... The people didn't want us to, to go, which in America, most lot of the independents failed and went under. But in Melbourne, they wanted us to survive. And so that Harry Potter thing was wonderful. I remember we had, probably, I'm probably exaggerating, but 500 people milling around. And across the road in Borders, they had a sort of lonely man with a falcon <laughs> and about two or three people. And it, it was terrific and no, other things, little things like um, a customer came in one day with a, a crumpled piece of paper and handed it over me, to me and said, oh, here's something for you. And it was Livre Sans Frontières. And so we immediately made it a sign and put it up <laughs> outside the shop. Um, so terrific moments. So people adopted. That was their cause. Um, there were two causes at the time. Um, Starbucks had also opened in Ligon Street, so... That was the one that made me most cross, I think. Uh, but the people of Carlton and Melbourne adopted it as their cause to get rid of both of those. It's sort of wonderful that now on Ligon Street there's this enormous brunettes, which yes. is an, you know, which was borders. That's right. So wonderful. Um, also, you know, I guess. The conversation naturally enough leans towards, you know, the, the big disruption of online book sales, yeah. uh, moving towards things like ebooks, uh, and yet readings has just opened, um, you know, 
more bookstores. Uh, and I really do want to talk about that because Melbourne is, you know, very much um, lauded as this great city of literature. But one of the things that people should realise um, is a part of the, the definition of what's considered to be a city of literature is the existence um, of independent bookstores and their mm. importance. What do you think in this age where a lot of people are kind of, you know, buying stuff online, um, do you think really bricks and mortar bookstores like yours really play? I think um, bookshops sort of anchor the community in a way, if, good ones, I mean. Uh, there's lots of great independents, uh, certainly in Melbourne, the Sun, uh, the Avenue, uh, the Fairfield Bookshop, who all run events and and relate to their communities. And I think that's what makes the bookshop important. It's also a very safe meeting place, mostly. Uh, so, you know, we find in all our reading shops, people often wait to meet friends. Um, so I think they give a lot back to the community in that way. Uh, unfortunately, no, look, sadly... One of the reasons why we've opened up more shops is one of the sad things about the borders closure was it not only took out borders but borders owned Angus and Robinson bookshops. So overnight we lost about 70 retail outlets, which for Australian publishers was mm. devastating. Um, and that hasn't really been picked up totally. It has to some extent. Um, and, I mean, there are worrying things. I mean, if you look at the CBD, there's only um, three, four bookshops in the CBD, when I was young, there were probably twenty. Mm. Um, so we've we've got a, lo- a way to go to to re-establish the bookshop as a vibrant and viable place. But I think people do like that experience, and I find that um, people use bookshops differently. I suppose people do buy online. That's just a matter of fact. But they do. There's enough of them that value going into the, having that experience of walking into readings or another bookshop and, and having that interaction with a person. Mm. I think, you know, we we love to adopt new technologies, but, I mean, is just sitting on your phone, ordering things online, is that a real interaction? It's an interesting question. Uh, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking with Managing Director of Readings, Mark Rubeau, about that wonderful Melbourne, Melbourne Institution's 50th anniversary, which is a wonderful thing to know that an independent bookstore has been running and successful for all of that time. To kind of, you know, pick up on that discussion about, you know, people buying online and the importance of of kind of, you know, bricks and mortar bookstores and what they do. I sort of love the idea of serendipity, which I think is one of the big things that you've lost online. I think we do have wonderful connections with people um, through our online interactions, but I think they're very different ones when they're in the real world. And one of the things that I sort of have loved over the years with bookstores is just finding a book um, and trying it out because you sort of like the look of the cover rather than having it, um, you know, pushed at you because an algorithm has said, you've read this and therefore you will like it. That can be quite accurate, mm. but I've often found things that I didn't know I would like, um, you know, or I've talked to an intelligent bookseller and they've recommended me something that, again, has sent me in a different direction. It's very different to kind of being documented and fingerprinted, I guess, like you are online these days to kind of have that wonderful serendipity. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we have an online site and it's quite a big one, uh, and we try to suggest things to people. Um, but obviously most people are going there, they know exactly what they want. But that to discover 
books in that way. I mean, often whenever I'm travelling, I'll always go to a bookshop because I want to have that experience. So, and often I always buy something because I find something like you. It jumped jumped out at me. Oh, that looks interesting. I'll give it a go. And I go home, and of course we've got it somewhere in the shop. <laughs> but I've had that pleasure of discovery and. Um, yeah, the Which idea of a, a recommendation. I do also want to say there's a wonderful thing that, that Readings does, which is that many of the people that work there are, in fact, writers. Yes. Um, many many of them are writers that have won awards, that are incredibly um, an important part of Melbourne's um, life. Uh, a bookstore sort of is one of those places that every book nerd since forever has kind of, you know, desperately wanted to spend time working in, myself included. <laughs> um, so talk to me a little bit about that because I know you have some wonderful kind of tales about last night's um, anniversary celebrations uh, with your readings crew. Yes, we um, we had a bit of a celebration last night for our 50th birthday and we we closed the shop early, which I was loath to do, but <laughs> but we did. It was a wonderful party. Uh, there was authors, um, customers, uh, the publishers we work with. Uh, we had a bar and... Um, we had some wonderful bar people. We had um, Christos Chalkas, who's a regular on three, 3 Triple R, and a wonderful author as well. Sophie Laguna, another wonderful author, and Barry Barry Cassidy from uh, Insiders, and they were all serving people Negronis. And <laughs> we thought they'd only do it for about a few minutes, but they stayed on the bar most of the night. That's <laughs> so, really fun. fantastic. And, um, and yes, look, we're I get terribly excited um, when any of our staff members sign a contract to get published. Uh, we've got a- a- Alec Patrick over at St Kilda who won the Miles Franklin Award, uh, Leanne Hall who's run the uh, New South Wales Premier's Award and the Tex Prize and our marketing manager Nina Kenwood won the uh, Tex Prize this year in her book, Young Adult Books, coming out later this year. Uh, Sean O'Byrne, Fiona Hardy, all coming out with books. Miles Allison, who's a wonderful book, came out a few years ago. So it's, I get a great thrill when... Um, when our, our staff members are, uh, are publishing books. It's really fantastic. I, I do also want to um, mention that um, that Readings is uh, having 50 special events um, that, to quote the, the Readings site, illustrate passion, artistry and Australian literature that are all built around, uh, you know, the idea of honouring writers and, um, and cultural life in Melbourne. Um, they're all going to be hosted at Readings, uh, speaking events, I think, including there was a recent reading by Carrie Tiffany of her latest book. That's um, um, coming up. Oh, it's coming up, yeah, is it? Yeah. Okay. And that's a wonderful book. <laughs> oh, great. Well, please look out for that. I'm getting all sorts of um, information out there like that you can find on the Readings website. Could you just give us a, an idea of how to get to Readings website if people want to look it's up? It's pretty easy. You just If you just Google Readings, it generally comes up, but it's www.readings.com.au and there's an events page. And you can find out Uh, some accurate information as opposed to what I may actually be giving you. Um, So hop on the Readings website, go into Readings, uh, have a conversation with someone. Um, I always think that one of my kind of favourite parts of wandering around Readings is seeing people I know or, you know, having a conversation with a bookseller. Uh, You might even run into Mark as he's sort of rushing around, kind of unpacking boxes or doing something of that like. Yes, I'm, I'm usually there on Saturday mornings, and in the morning, I sort of my son who um, who's is going to take over the business from me. It's very nice, but he says you can always see Mark's footprints around the <laughs> around the shop. You know, different screens open, <laughs> the coffee cup sort of on the left on the counter. 
That's wonderful. Well, Mark Rubo, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thanks so much for having me, Mel. It's a pleasure. Congratulations on five decades of readings. That's about all we have time for uh, today on Backstory. I'd like to thank my guest, uh, Julian Van Loon, who's the author of the wonderful The Thinking Woman, uh, which is out now through New South, and Mark Rubot, who uh, is the proprietor and managing director of readings, uh, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary. And yes, uh, the name was based on a couple whose last name was Reading, which I just think is such a delightful little detail. Three triple R. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.